This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If I had to sum up this market in a word, I'd call it extremist. We rush from one extreme to the other, sometimes in the same day, including this one, with the Dow gained 198 points. The S&P advanced 0.48%. The Nasdaq declined 0.01%. What do I mean by extremism? Stock extremism? Okay, at the opening this morning, we saw a screaming Nasdaq rally based solely on the strength in one stock, Alphabet. There was no other reason for that index to be running. While the Nasdaq partied, we got some truly hideous action in the big industrials, in part because the president praised tariffs, and most of these companies are being hurt by tariffs, and in part because many traders made up their minds that things weren't so hot before they even knew what the industrials were going to say. Two glaring examples, 3M and Salesforce.com. From the, for the get-go, that's right, before even the opening bell, 3M stock got slammed after reported really what I thought was a better than expected quarter. The culprit? There was none. Company doubled its organic growth, so strengthened almost every business line, and managed to reverse some of the sickening declines that it experienced in the previous quarter. This was a dramatic turnaround, and it really called into question the bearish narrative. That's been developing ever since Inga Tulin announced his retirement as CEO and Michael Roman took the helm. No matter, the stock opened at its yearly low, crashing down to $190. That's off eight bucks from yesterday. It was simply hideous. I struggled when I did my mad dash with David Faber because I'd poured up and down the release. I just couldn't find out what the heck was wrong. I said it was an overreaction to a misunderstood quarter that was definitively better than anyone in the was looking for. Was it perfect? Ah, some of the gains came from an incredibly aggressive buyback, which moved the needle on the bottom line. There were some one-time positives that really did distort the earnings per share, too. But I kept looking and looking and looking to see what people hated, given that the stock had already lost 19% for the year, and I couldn't see it. Turns out I really did miss nothing. 3M was simply too hated. As the conference call proceeded, the stock started ramping furiously, and it only closed up $1.84. Up! That's more than a 10-point swing. Now, that's what I call extremism. Or to put it another way, the morons who sold 3M down refused to wait for the conference call to hear how the company was really doing. Sure, there was a subtle guy down from the top of the range for the full-year forecast. But what mattered was an incredibly strong return to organic growth. That's the metric we were all looking for, which is why the stock ended up bouncing so hard. Now, with Salesforce, we see the reverse. Unlike the hobbled 3M, this stock was coming in hot, up more than 44% for the year. And it opened with a bang, a gain of more than a point to its all-time high. But it was on absolutely no news. Ironically, Stiefel put out a note this morning entitled, We'll be pigs, Kent! 
That's a reference to a line in the hilarious European vacation about how it's okay to buy up here. It's okay to be a pig. That analyst told us that while buyers should be aware of lofty levels in tech stocks, he then says, as I quote, as it relates to digital disruptors and the ultimate beneficiaries of enterprise digital transformations, we think investors absolutely have to own Salesforce, end quote. Now, I agree with Stiefel, which is why we own Salesforce for my charitable trust. However, the note happened to come out on what we call a reversal day, so to speak, where the industrials got dumped at the opening and the Nasdaq soared. Salesforce stock opening up at its all-time high, gaining more than a dollar before doing a stunning pirouette and going into the red. Yep, lagging industrial 3M sees its stock get pummeled to its yearly low before blasting off all aboard while salesforce.com opens at its all-time high before plunging into the abyss along with most of its cloud king compadres what gives how can 3m get crushed and then crush it while salesforce comes out strong and then takes it on the chin you know what you can blame the macro you can blame the headlines but don't blame the companies what we saw this morning was an overly exuberant Nasdaq, remember, it only finished virtually unchanged, relying on the fantastic numbers from Alphabet to pull up the whole index. As you'll hear later, I thought Alphabet gave you a green light to buy Alphabet, and perhaps even Amazon, because of the cloud similarities, but not much else. I guess you could say what's good for Google is um, good for um, Google. 3M, on the other hand, was buoyed not just truly by a, by a truly better-than-expected quarter because there were no expectations, but also by a belief that maybe the global economy is accelerating. I know Wall Street has given up on China as a source of growth because of trade friction, but last night the PRC injected some serious stimulus into its economy, something that will indeed help the likes of 3M and United Technologies, which also put up a terrific quarter that was initially dismissed by the market and then embraced another example of extremism. And it's not just Chinese stimulus. The commodities markets have been gotten, they're just red hot. Including the red metal, copper, which is often used as a proxy for worldwide growth. The Baltic Freight Index, a measure of shipping that is used as a proxy for Chinese growth, roared ahead too. When you get commodities higher and China stronger, money managers crack open their playbook, which says to sell the highest growth stocks and buy the industrials, which is exactly what happened. Now, interest rates have been going higher because of, this, of commodity inflation, and that allowed the bank stocks to rally once again. We also got a nifty number from Eli Lilly and a strong one from Biogen. That lifted both the drugs and the biotechs. Still, though, the session was dominated by the money flowing into the techs and out of the industrials in the morning, and then out of the non-fang techs and into the industrials for the rest of the day. Done as surely as the tides go in and out. Something that's natural when it comes to the ocean, but insane when it comes to stocks. So how do you navigate your way through such a crazy environment? Simple. Like I said last night, individual stocks still do matter. But the corollary is that individual stocks don't have the kind of pin action, even the drugs like I just mentioned, they don't have that kind of pin action like they used to. Because ETFs have less power to drag entire sectors to and fro for the whole whole session. It's absolutely true that Alphabet had an amazing quarter. That doesn't mean you should buy all things tech, even though that's exactly what happened at the opening. It's absolutely true that 3M had a good quarter, not a bad one. But the selling of 3M knocked down almost all the industrials. When investors figured out that 3M is doing just fine, they took the whole group higher. But again, there was little staying power for the whole panoply, uh, especially for the ones that haven't reported yet. The bottom line, the moral of the story is that the extremes have to be avoided. Don't buy up. Don't chase when there's nothing but rampant pin action like we saw in the case with Alphabet. Don't sell down when there's nothing wrong. And by the way, if you haven't even heard the conference call, which is what happened to 3M, 
I mean, you're just being silly. In fact, here's a radical idea for everyone who dumped the industrials this morning. Maybe try to figure out what's going on before you take action. Otherwise, what you should do is you probably should take your bat and your ball and your scotch tape and then go home. Let's go to Neil in Alabama. Neil! Holy cow! Oh man, I think that was a youngin'. What's up? <laughs> hey Jim, Neil Fetner from Alabama. Good that was my you. son Walker. He's been on Mad. Uh, he's been a Mad Money fan since he was 18, 18 months old. Every day when I came home from work, he used to say, "We're going to watch Sell Sell today," because that's what he used to call your show. But on a ah. more serious note, I want to ask you. What about this new hot stock called Tilray, ticker symbol T-I-L-R-Y? The stock exploded last week after its IPO on Thursday. It's been up big, but it's starting to pull back. What should I do? It, it went Buy, too crazy. It went too crazy. Uh, this is a, a pot stock, medicinal marijuana. Um, I think the better one is GW Pharma. Uh, you know I like Canopy, too. The group gets hot. It gets cold. It gets hot. It gets cold. But remember, it was up huge from where it came, and now it's just simple profit-taking. I like to own a portfolio of marijuana stocks, not just one. Let's go to Carol in Florida. Carol. This call makes my day. I'm calling about Synchrony Financial, S-Y-N. Sure, Synchrony. Which will be reporting a second quarter earnings on Friday. I'm interested in your thoughts on the relationship between PayPal and Synchrony, since Synchrony recently acquired PayPal's consumer credit portfolio. How does this enhance Synchrony's position? Well, I'll tell you, Carol, Synchrony wants volume, and that gave him some volume, gave him some heft. I think Synchrony's okay, but, you know, I've been a huge fan of PayPal and Dan Schulman. Now, the stock's up a couple today because we saw some uh, Dan Loeb, who's an activist, say that he thinks the stock can go up big from here. That's not a reason to own the stock, but PayPal is my fave and my chapel trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionLearnersPlus.com club is the way to get the information. Tom in Indiana. Tom! Yes, Mr. Kramer, how are you today? I am good. How about you, sir? I'm great. Thank you. Hey, here's my question. I own stock currently in Dominion Energy. And, uh, of course, uh, there's also Dominion Midstream Partners, which is DM. Right. Um, Would Dominion midstream partners also be a, a, a company worth acquiring stock in as well? I don't think it's bad. Companies. I think that it's down almost 50%. It's, it's not that low quality. Uh, we got a FERC uh, modification rule that really hurt the group of the mass limited partnerships. I don't think it's a bad bet here, but I've got to tell you, you know, I've soured on that group, but this thing's just gotten too cheap. Uh, I do like letter D very much. They're involved in difficult acquisition with South Car- in South Carolina that has kept that stock back. All right. Avoid the extremes, people. You saw what happened today with the stocks of 3M and Salesforce. It's essential to figure out what's going on before you take any action. Is that so hard? On Man Tonight, the S&P 500 is within a stone's throw of its all-time high set back in January. So could we see a similar swoon that we saw in early February? I'm going to tackle the technicals to find out. Then, not even a $5 billion fine can slow down the stock of Alphabet. All-time highs. I'll tell you why investors could continue to go gaga over Google. And it's been one of my favorite healthcare plays for ages. And the stock continues to rally after earnings until, well, let's just say, let's find out what's going on. Could Danner have more room to run or is it stalled again? I'm giving you my take. So stick with Kramer. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Carl Quintanilla, Morgan Brennan, John Forks, Squawk Alley, 11 Eastern, CNBC. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. After the recent rally, you know, this has been a pretty good month. Market's almost done clawing its way back to the all-time highs we set back in January for that big sell-off. So how exactly should we feel about these levels? Isn't that incredibly important? I mean, could the S&P 500 be preparing to break out to new highs? Will it be smooth sailing? Or is it time to be afraid? Because we could be in for another February-style swoon, something I cannot let happen again. Got to be prepared. So to answer that question, we're going to go off the charts with Mark Sebastian. He's a brilliant technician. He's the founder of OptionPit.com, as well as being my colleague at RealMoney.com. He's our resident expert on the volatility index, the VIX for short, also known as the fear gauge. And so far this year, it's been a darn good predictor of where the averages might be headed. Just a reminder, the VIX works by measuring the implied volatility of S&P 500 options over the next month. How do options measure volatility? Well, a lot of investors like to buy puts and calls as a kind of insurance against wild swings in the market. So when they expect a lot of volatility, the price of that insurance goes up. That's why Sebastian's methodology, comparing the action in the VIX to the action in the broader stock market, has worked so well for us on the show. Now let's get to the major issue. Using that methodology, how similar is this moment to where we were in January, last time we got up at these levels, when the market was roaring higher and everything was sunshine and rainbows right before we walked into one of the worst downturns in ages. Okay, take a look at these two daily charts of the S&P 500 and the volatility index going back to the beginning of the year. Focus right here on this part. Now, before we get into this, uh, remember that in a healthy market, the VIX and the S&P should not be moving in the same direction at the same time. During a rally, you want the VIX to be going down. I mean, it's called the fear gauge for a reason, right? When the VIX and the S&P are climbing at the same time, this is a sign that something could be very, very wrong. And when the VIX and the S&P are both falling, that tells you a bottom might soon be at hand. A falling stock market where people feel less afraid is a good sign. The stocks could be done going down. A bottom. So what did happen in January? Sebastian points out that as the S&P was hitting new highs, this is that great period that we were all so bullish about, right? The volatility index was also rallying. Wait a second. That's the opposite of what we wanted to see. Or as Sebastian puts it, when the S&P and the VIX have a strong positive correlation, that's a real bad sign for the market because they never stay correlated for long. Something has to give. Either the VIX goes back down or the S&P plummets. Sure enough, in late January, this relationship went back to normal as the S&P tanked and the VIX spiked, just like it's supposed to during a major sell-off. So it played out in form. Sebastian says that most of the time when the VIX and the S&P are trading together, the VIX turns out to be right and the S&P turns out to be wrong. 
In short, the rally in the volatility index back in January was a major red flag. He's wholly told us it signaled a brutal impending sell-off that very few people saw coming. So how about right now? Is this analogous? Do we have to worry? Let's move over to the right side of the chart. Does this current situation look anything like January before the big breakdown? Well, since June 27th, the S&P is up 120 points, almost a 5% gain in less than a month. Nice action. And what has the VIX done over this period? Well, precisely what it should. It went down from 18 to 12. In short, the VIX and the market are moving in opposite directions from what we saw here. It's the opposite of that, okay? Sebastian says it's a very bullish sign. Unlike in January when the market was getting nervous about the rally, even the stocks kept climbing. Traders are not reaching to buy put options to protect themselves against wild swings here. Just the opposite. They're expecting a lot less volatility, not more volatility. In other words, this chart tells Sebastian that the smart money believes in this rally. The kind of big institutional money managers who use options as insurance like what they see. Now, obviously, if we start seeing some very disappointing earnings reports, this backdrop could get real negative real fast. But so far, the earnings have been darn good, including today. But, and this is important, according to Sebastian, we almost never see the VIX plummeting like this as we head into the most densely uh, packed part of earnings season. When you have a ton of of huge companies all reporting at once, things do tend to get kind of, well, volatile. So the action here is kind of weird, although not necessarily in a bad way. In January, the VIX spiked going into earnings, even if a lot of that had to do with the market's epic sell-off. Going into earnings season in April, the VIX also spiked. Although, once we started seeing the numbers, investors calmed down and the VIX pulled back. This time, we saw an actual decline in the volatility index, and that decline continues. On the surface, Sebastian thinks this is a pretty positive development. What about beneath the surface, though? Okay, let's go to another chart that can really show you something. Take a look at these. The normal volatility index, okay, the VIX, and the... uh, the VIVIX, well, let's put it VVIX, which measures the volatility of the VIX itself. If you can remember anything from calculus class, think of it as a derivative uh, of the VIX. What does Sebastian make of this picture? While the VIVIX certainly isn't popping here, the fact is it's still holding near 100. It's a sign that VIX traders themselves are still a bit wary. While the volatility index has come down dramatically, the VIVIX has been pretty steady. So what does this mean? All right, Sebastian says that if the VIX does go below 12 for a few days, but this VIVIX fails to go uh, back to 90 or even lower, that could be a warning sign. Why? Because it would imply that volatility will be going back up. And if the VIX does start to rally along with the S&P 500, then we know that's that's not a good sign, right? In short, if the VIX keeps going lower, but the VIVIX doesn't come down with it, Sebastian thinks you should expect some choppiness in the stock market, maybe yet a uh, painful month of August. Although, to be totally clear, it hasn't happened yet. It's just something he wants to look out for. At the moment, both the volatility index and the VIVIX are painting a positive picture. What does this leave us? Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Mark Sebastian, suggest that unlike what happened in January, the S&P 500 is headed still higher. He thinks we could be making new all-time highs by the end of earnings season, and he wouldn't be surprised if we get a second half rally that takes the S&P to 2,900, maybe even 3,000, with some kind of positive resolution on tariffs and trade. That's how much he likes what's going on with the VIX versus the S&P. My view, based on what we're hearing so far this earnings season, I think he's got a point. But given the recent run, I am watching the VIX like a hawk for any signs like we got going into late January, because wow, that peak and that February bruising, we got to spot that before it happens. All right, much more Mad Money ahead. Alphabet may hold the answer to why the naysayers have been so wrong about the bang stocks. I'll reveal it just ahead. Then how does the stalled market darling get its groove back? I'm giving you a case study in Danaher. 
And Centene appeared to report a pretty solid quarter today, right? But the stock still took a hit. Is it a red flag? Or maybe it's the long-awaited buying opportunity. I'm talking with the CEO. So stick with Kramer. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. About halfway through Alphabet's conference call last night, smack in the middle of the Q&A, I had an epiphany. I realized why naysayers have been so wrong about Fang. It hit me when CEO Sundar Pichai was asked about the uses of Google and how pervasive the company's products have become in our daily lives. He said, and I love this, that the uses are vast, and he offered a very simple credo, and I quote, we want Google to be the source you think of when you run into a problem, end quote. Now, that's it. That's a pretty ambitious manifesto, isn't it? I mean, after all, who hasn't run into problems? Who wouldn't want an unbiased, trusted source to help us solve those problems? It's universal. We're talking all 7 billion people on Earth, or at least the ones with Internet access, a number that's growing by the day. And that's exactly the adjustable market that Google's shooting for. Think about it. Who hasn't gotten lost? Google Maps is there, having just added 110 million algorithmically drawn buildings onto their maps this year alone. Who hasn't been in a foreign country? And I had no idea how to ask a question. Google Translators got your back, with some explosive use, by the way, during the World Cup. Who hasn't tried and failed to remember something? Google has the answers. The answers for 7 billion people. Think about that. How many companies besides Alphabet can claim they have billions of people worldwide clamoring for their wares? I'll tell you how many others. Three. Facebook, Amazon, and Netflix. That's who. Each of those solves a particular problem in a particularly digital way. Amazon solves the problem of getting you a product where and when you want it. Netflix solves the problem of entertainment worldwide by going direct to the consumer via the Internet. And Facebook solves a problem you didn't even know you had. The problem of self-expression and keeping in touch via that self-expression. It's not identity theft. It's identity creation. Almost every other company I follow has limits. They're either tapped out geographically or are facing incredible competition. It's always zero sum. There's always someone else. Even Apple suffers from vicious competition. But is there really a serious competitive search in online retail and social media and high-quality streaming content? While Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet, formerly Google, may not be exactly monopolies, it might be fair to call them mindshare monopolies. Alphabet in particular has so many different product lines where it's pulling away from the competition that you have to ask yourself, do we really need to be worried about paying to cust- what they're paying to bring in new customers if they're the only game in town? I think the costs have gone up simply because that's what happens when you go from desktop to mobile. They aren't running out of demand. It's just that mobile is more expensive to dominate. Anybody who's worried about subscriber acquisition costs or perhaps a $5.1 billion fine for the EU, missing the point. 
It's only in the cloud that there are real competitors, namely from Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM. But cloud adoption is so early that Pashai said, and I quote, I do think that there is an inflection point, and that's why it feels far from a zero-sum game, end quote. They're spending like mad on data centers to meet demand. That's the kind of spending I can live with. On top of that, Alphabet's Waymo autonomous driving platform is way ahead of anyone else in that category. You judge that by commercial miles driven. Hey, they've done 8 million miles. It wasn't that long ago that skeptics were predicting the collapse of YouTube because advertisers were up in arms about their content appearing next to scatological nonsense. It didn't come up. Not a factor anymore. And Android just gets stronger and stronger despite government intervention in Europe. So are you late to the Google party now, even up 47 points today or almost 4% to an all-time high? No, I don't think so. Why not? As excellent CFO Ruth Porat told us, and I quote, 90% of commerce is still offline, and we do see a great opportunity for digital play a bigger role, end quote. If a company's only 10% into its total addressable market, you call it early, which is why even though Alphabet has an $870 billion market cap, I still think it's got room to run. And this, by the way, was the best conference call they've ever done. So before you chastise me for saying Alphabet and these other FANG stocks deserve to be higher, remember, if they solve problems for the whole world and they can create value for billions more people, then we should stop wondering if the stocks are too high and start asking ourselves if they're too low. Bob in Florida, Bob. Booyah, Jim, and it's, uh, thanks for taking my call. Of course. How can I help? I have a question about Baidu, ticker symbol BIDU. Uh, they're reporting earnings uh, at the end of this month, and I was wondering, should I buy it before or after they report, or don't buy it at all? Okay, we don't really play the earnings game on the show, as you know, because you're a constant listener, but I would say you can do half of it and then maybe half after. I'm not trying to game the quarter. I am trying to tell you that Baidu and Alibaba are the only two Chinese stocks that I recommend other than Balsam, which has now moved too much, and I think that you can buy them with great confidence. Let's go to Ben in Massachusetts. Ben! Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So I, uh, I just wanted to talk about Oracle real quick. Um, they beat their numbers by a good margin at the end of last quarter. But there was also a pretty negative reaction to their new reporting format. Um, Since then, we've seen the stock come back to roughly the same levels. And I think that there's still plenty of upside. Do you think that this rebound was a signal that that dip was an overreaction? Yeah, I don't know, Ben. I was, I was. I mean, I know that that Mark Hurd called it a nothing burger on the conference call right at the end. I thought it was significant because I like to know how cloud's growing, uh, and I think it was a red flag. And I'm not going to back away from that. And I think that you do not want to own the stock of Oracle. John in Alabama, John. Hey, Jim, a big roll tide billiard to you. Are you ready for some football? You bet I am, and I love Bama football. What's happening? Hey, I'm calling about BlackBerry. They were king of the hill back in the early 2000s. Their stock was going for about 150 a share. I guess around 2006, Apple kicked them to the curb hard and fast with the iPhone. Right. But they've got a new software and a services division now. It's been growing at about 15% a year the last three years, sales of almost $800 million the last year. They're doing deals with Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Baidu, and Samsung. Do you think they're poised for a comeback, Jim? You know what I thought, John? You know, I've been on the comeback bandwagon since the mid-single digits. Uh, That last quarter was not stellar, and that brought the stock back to earth. But I'm with you. I think there's there's value here. I would not sell it. Google wants to solve all of your problems, and that's why it continues to lead itself higher, along with the rest of the fact. 
there's much more man money ahead. I'm telling you how Danhurst's decision to spin off its lackluster dental business could leave investors smiling. Then Centene's up a whopping 340% over the past five years. But could today's drop push pause on the move? I got to tell you, I'm not sure. Let's talk to the CEO. And order calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Tariffs are the greatest. The greatest? It, Not it, Muhammad Ali. No, no. Tariffs. Uh, Ali's it, been replaced. Goat. Right? The greatest of all tariffs. Yes. <laughs> it all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Every now and then, a really high-quality stock with a stunning track record of delivering long-term gains will stall out for a period of months, or maybe even years. Even the best-run companies in the world can't always translate their strength into higher stock prices, and they'll fall out of style in the Wall Street fashion show. So how does a stalled market darling get its groove back? Let's consider the case of Danaher. DHR, the Life Sciences Diagnostics and Environmental Technology Play. Over the past few decades, decades, Danner has been perhaps the single best conglomerate on earth. Ask anyone in the business, and you say, what's a good conglomerate? They're almost always going to come back and say Danner. There was a time when people talked about this company as the second coming at Berkshire Hathaway. And listen, I'm still a huge fan of Danner, and that's why we own it for my travel trust, which you can follow along with by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. In recent years, though, the company's gone through a major transformation. The old Dan era was a lot less focused, but in 2016, they spun off their many different industrial divisions as a whole new company called Fortif. Since then, both stocks have given you some remarkable gains. This is yet another reason why I'm such a big fan of breakups. While investors were always willing to give the old Dan the benefit of the doubt, it's just that well-run, the fact is that conglomerates pay a penalty when they're too diversified. Why? Because very few investors actually want to own some amalgamation of a healthcare company and an industrial. Those two groups often trade in opposite directions. When the economy is roaring, money managers prefer to swap out of the slow and steady healthcares and buy the cyclical industrial stocks that can produce enormous gains during a major economic expansion. But when the economy slows down, these same institutional fund managers swap out of the industrials and move the money back into the defense of healthcare stocks that tend to do just fine in a recession. You know what that means? It meant that the old Danaher was often pulled in two different directions. So the company split itself up rather than have this thing where it was constantly coming split, coming split, two different pieces. Much easier to understand. Danaher got the slow and steady businesses, and Fortive got the cyclical ones. Sure enough, that move unlocked a ton of value, especially at Fortive, as the economy quickly went into overdrive. It was perfect for Fortive. But it's also been good for Danaher because as a healthcare and environmental technology play, it had a much larger constituency on Wall Street. However, after years of outperformance, Danaher's stock stalled out earlier this year. After rallying to 103 in January, the stock pulled back to the mid-90s and then spent the next six months basically trading sideways. The darn thing couldn't get any traction. Why? It started when the company reported a good quarter at the end of January, but also gave you some mildly disappointing guidance. And even mild disappointments are not what investors have come to expect from a company that's as well-managed as Danaher. By the way, they never talk. They're never promotional. They just keep grinding it out. So the stock pulled back a bit, and then it got hit even harder by the market-wide sell-off that crushed everything in early February. But, and this is a big but, 
we started to see some truly worrying signs in the spring. For starters, Danaher pre-announced some positive numbers, telling us that the first quarter results will be above the high end of the previous guidance, thanks to strength in their diagnostics and life sciences division. Hey, great, right? Well, while the stock initially bounced, it quickly gave back those gains as investors freaked out about the impact of President Trump's new tariffs, because Danaher does a lot of business overseas. Then in April, Danaher reports an excellent beat and raise quarter, right? Even better than the pre-announcement. But the stock barely bats an eyelash. It's like nobody cared. Why is that? What made investors give up on the company? Well, the only bad thing here, the one problematic division, was Danaher's dental business. The company's life sciences, diagnostic, and environmental segments all grew by anywhere from 12.5 to 14%. Those are nice, consistent growers. You also saw some hefty margin expansion from life sciences and diagnostics. Oh, boy, does the market love those two. But dental was a whole nother story. See, the whole dental industry has been getting hammered lately. And Danner Dental saw its sales grow by just 2.5%. It would have been down 3% without the impact of currency fluctuations. Plus, their dental margins experienced some massive declines. So dental has been the albatross around Danaher's neck. Even his management uh, remained adamant that this business would start to turn the corner uh, later this year, maybe 2019. The other issue, China. Danner gets more than 10% of its sales from mainland China. And there are concerns that the company could get caught in the crossfire if the trade wars keep escalating. Although, honestly, I doubt the Chinese Communist Party is dumb enough to slap tariffs on Danner's medical equipment. Still, the stock was stuck in a rut. Between the drag from dental and the China worries, Danner's shares couldn't get any lift. And I've got to tell you, I used to dread watching the release to see how bad the dental line was. It, it just kept hurting everybody. We had Henry Shiner, remember? The dental line was tough. Well, I was worried, that is, until last Thursday, when the company reported an excellent quarter, but also told us heavenly about plans to spin off the problematic dental business, which combined to send the stock soaring 4.5% in a single session. Environmental diagnostics and life sciences all remain strong. And I have to admit, dental improved substantially. 2% core growth, thanks to a pickup in the sales of consumables and equipment for the first time since 2016. Of course, the real positive here, though, is that they're spinning off the dental biz. Separate company, second half of next year. Danner is confident that it will perform better as a standalone company. They can gobble up competitors via acquisitions. In fact, management even likened the dental spinoff to the Ford spinoff which was a big win for both Ford of shareholders and Danners. But there was more to it than good numbers in getting rid of the dental albatross. On the conference call, uh, Danner addressed the worries about tariffs and trade. CFO Dan- Daniel Comes explained that, at least so far, the tariffs that have been imposed will cost this company maybe a penny per quarter, mostly because their components have been, become a bit more expensive. But he then went on to tell us that the company's doing everything it can to minimize the impact by changing the supply chain or seeking exemptions or moving their manufacturing. In response, the analysts gushed about the quarter. Suddenly, the two biggest overhangs have been either removed or alleviated. People could finally focus on the actual numbers again. Remember, the previous quarter, Danner also gave you great numbers, but nobody cared because of China and dental. Now it appears that the China impact is both minimal and manageable, and dental will soon be no longer part of the company, and I won't have to fear when the release comes out, as I have for so long. 
Think of it as addition by subtraction. Danner's Diagnostics, Life Sciences, Environmental Divisions, they're all double-digit growers, solid margin expansion. They're what investors want to own, not that beleaguered dental business. And look, given the company's track record, you have to believe in Danner's ability to unlock value by breaking itself up. It's what they do. Nobody thought that Fortif would be a huge winner when it was spun off in 2016. Well, not everybody. We, we liked it on the show. It turned out to be an even better performer than Danaher itself. When it comes to value creation, these guys know what they're doing. Even better, I think management's guidance was still conservative, which means they'll probably be able to beat the numbers next time, too. Now, with the stock trading 21 times next year's estimates, I think it's still a buy, given the consistency and the acceleration of, of the numbers. Uh, and even for this recent bounce, I would, I would scoop some up. Bottom line, Danner is doing everything it needs to do to do to generate higher stock prices, which is why I think this baby has more room to run. Without dental to worry about, with the tariffs looking manageable, this already terrific story is suddenly looking a heck of a lot better. Man Bunny's back after the break. It is time! Seven to Lehman, Chris Moser, Raph Garzol, and then the lightning round's over. Are you ready, Skid? That's over the lightning round, Chris Moser. Let's start with Greg in New Hampshire. Greg! Yes, how you doing, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. My question is, is the stock that's been on a tear for the last 52 weeks. It started off at about 20. It's now trading at like $80. I'm wondering if I've missed my buying opportunity. The stock is WWE. You know, I actually think you may not have. I mean, it was Strauss Zelnick who explained this because he uh, runs Take Two about how compelling this business model is. And don't forget, they're also subscription business. So I have to say, no, you haven't. I buy half and then see if it comes in. Let's go to Broad E or Broad in New York. Broad. Jim, talk to me. Hey, uh, what do you see on Wolverine Worldwide? I like the whole power business. I like the footwear business. That stock is pretty close to its high. I prefer Nike over it. Let's go to Don in Kentucky. Don. Hey, Jim, how are you, man? Thanks for taking my call. Uh, quite welcome. I'm uh, calling you about KHC. I bought it at 76. Uh, it went up to 90, and it just fell back. And what should I do? Well, they need to make a deal. Meantime, I cannot count on selling it this low. It did go a little bit lower than this. I think the company's trying to get religion about growth. And if they try to get religion about growth, then the stock can go forward, or they can make an acquisition, and the stock will go higher. Rick and Florida, Rick. Hi, Jim. Rick, what's up? Uh, I'm interested in getting into some oil. Possibly, I'm, I'm looking at the Royal Dutch Shell RDSB shares, seventy dollars a share, uh, with five point two percent dividend versus Chevron, one hundred twenty-three share, three point six. But may I say, let's put another one in the mix. I'd like BP. We're telling people who are members of the ActionLearnsPlus.com club that BP with a five percent yield actually has more growth than even Royal Dutch. That's the one I would go with. Tom in Colorado, Tom. Hey, Jim Booyah, Booyah from the Rockies. How are you? I am good. How hey, are you? I got good. Two-fold question. Why are consumer staples lagging the market? And one of those uh, stocks is Coca-Cola. Okay. Uh, the reason why they're lagging the market is because they haven't been able to show a lot of growth. Coca-Cola is actually on a growth path. It's doing a little bit better. They're about to report. Uh, I think that, the, uh, that uh, Quincy's doing a good job. And I think it's slow and steady. does, uh, let's say, come in uh, place in the race. Not uh, show, but not win. Let's go to Gus in New York. Gus. Hey, Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Okay. Uh, I'd like to know your advice on the Scott Miracle Company. Well, Scott Miracle Company. You know what I feel about Scott? They keep 
keep screwing it up. And therefore, I think that it's absolutely right that it's lower. Uh, and you know what? I know people are playing as a pot play. We got real pot plays now. Uh, and the one that I still like is GW Pharma, but I also think Canopy's good. And you know, I'm keeping track of the whole group. Let's go to uh, Alan in New Jersey. Alan. Booyah, Jim, from the Garden and Mall State. How are you today? I am doing good. How about you? Excellent. I'm a longtime listener and a first-time caller. My uh, question for today is a recent IPO, Columbia Savings Bank, uh, here in New Jersey. You know, look, these often do very well. You have to get, you have to look at them at a price-to-book value, and I'm not sure what the price-to-book value is, but I will say this. We got J.P. Morgan selling so cheap. Why do we have to go down and buy a little bit? J.P. Morgan's the best. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Okay, what the ch- what what the heck happened just to the stock of Centene? For those of you who don't remember, Centene is one of my favorites. It's a health plan provider that gets most of its business from government-sponsored programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Its stock has been red hot. It's given us a 342% gain over the past five years. It's up a quick 35% year-to-date coming into the session. But then the company reported this morning, and Wall Street was less than pleased, with the stock pulling back for $6 or 4.5% 4. 4. today. What happened? While Centene posted a top and bottom line beat, and they even modestly raised their full-year earnings guidance, apparently it wasn't enough. The problem, okay, the company had fewer managed care members than the analysts were expecting, and their health benefits ratio, the percentage of the premiums that they spent on medical care, came in at 85.7, and that was 30 basis points below what people were whispering about. Plus, there was also a small increase in sales, general, and administrative expenses related to the Obamacare exchanges. If all that sounds like quibbling with a very strong quarter, I get it. But remember, this stock had run up pretty dramatically in earnings. I think it's probably just a garden variety sell-off, and there's a lot to look forward to here, thanks to Centene's recent acquisition of Fidelis, the nation's largest Medicaid-managed care provider. But let's kick the tires a bit and check in with Michael Nadov. He's the chairman and CEO of Centene. Find out more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Nadov, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. All right. First, Michael, I, I'm going to not take my cue from the stock because you were on our program and the company had a $103 stock and the stock burst up. But what I do want to know is um, how have medical costs fared the first half of the year? And what are you seeing as a trend with medical costs? The uh, medical costs have been very stable. The trend continues to be stable. We commented today on our call Low single digits, as we have expected. And what they've been very, okay, well, they've been and, very good. And that would mean for, say, Fidelis, that if you come in with something that you talked about on the call in here, but I really need you to expound upon it, with better technology, you can make, if medical costs are stable, a lot more money than Fidelis has been able to do, given the fact that Fidelis was not really a company that was supposed to make a lot of money. Well, if you look at Fidelis, we, we have said quite all along that we will be helping them with their medical management costs. As a result, some of their GNA will go up, SGNA, but the medical costs will come down. And it's not a cliff. It will take over the next uh, two, three quarters, expect it to start to come down at, at the New York plan. What uh, technology do you use, sir? What are the analytics that you referenced in the conference call that makes it so that you're so confident about this? 
Oh, well, we have a case management that looks at everything that's been done, what's been ordered. It's electronic that works with uh, high-risk patients. They know how to do that. We have an uh, interpreter that uh, does predictive modeling that can say what could happen. It looks at, a, it looks at 12 million cases and uh, 12 million files in about 30 seconds, 60 seconds. So it manages high, high data, uh, large data, as we like to talk about. Well, one of the things that I want, why I brought that up is because a lot of people are very excited about what Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Jamie Dimon think they can do, try to keep healthcare costs down. I think you're the nation's premier company in keeping healthcare costs down. Why can't they just hire you? Well, I think in the end, they're probably going to want some of our systems capability. But I'm glad they're doing it. It's a real disruptor. And I think the industry needs disruptors. And we're going to be one ourselves. Well, can you, you were very disruptive on this call talking about Obamacare exchanges and how you're very excited about how they're doing. I thought that they were going away. You're talking about making some money with them. We're doing really well. And even today, the, all the confusion was over the risk adjustments, uh, which people didn't take time to really understand. We had a great quarter. The risk adjustments worked. Obamacare is working. We're doing very well with it. And we're anticipating growing it. Okay, now, you know our president... Every time he talks about this, says that Obamacare is, a, is just a terrible failure. You just said that it's not. Can you please explain to me uh, how a president could so disagree with someone who's in the field? You know, I, I, I'm going to be very careful not to be specific about him, but I think just in general, we have moved from policy to politics. And if you look at what the, what's the right health care policy for this population, the ACA works. And we've proven it. We've been doing this for five years. It's been very successful. It's uh, at the top end of our margin range. We continue to grow it. High satisfaction. 80% the last two years have re-upped the following year. Uh, do you think that any of the restrictions that they've been putting on are going to make it so that's a less profitable business for you going forward? I don't think so. I think they're doing everything they can to be disruptive of it. You know, they're, they're cutting back the enrollment fees and what they're spending to get people enrolled. But this past year, we thought we were going to grow 100,000 lives, and we grew 500,000 lives. Holy cow. Well, anyway, look, I, I want to <laughs> congratulate you for another good quarter. I understand. Look, the stock ran a lot. Your, your quarter was terrific. Thank you so much to Michael Nidorf. He's the chairman and CEO of Centene CNC. I would use this decline to buy the stock. They have money's back after the break. Okay, 3M has been one of the worst stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. But I think after this quarter and going through the conference call that the stock has put in a bottom when it touched 190. Is it going to go straight back up to 250? Absolutely not. But can it really crater much from here? That's actually pretty hard to believe, given the fact they have such good organic growth now. Like I said, there's always bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.